Okay, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Sharon. So um, welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for January 14th, 2015. And we um, have an excellent talk today. Next week we have Dr. Scott Shipman. Dr. Scott Shipman will be sharing improving care for children at the interface of primary care and specialty care. This is part of our uh, CHAD mini fellowship series, although it doesn't seem to fit in with the musculoskeletal theme. Scott actually is a musculoskeletal practitioner. And actually, uh, the fundamental underlying principle of all the CHAD mini fellowship series that we've done, GI and, and behavioral health so far, is to improve that interface and improve the uh, transition of care as needed from primary to specialty care. Um, I'll introduce today's speaker in a second, but I wanted to share some, always some share some good news to start the morning. So, as you know, our participants in the Solutions for Patient Safety National Children's uh, Network, one of 84 members, and we've gotten our third recognition for high performance in the past couple of weeks. The team led by David Bauer and others for surgical site infection was recognized for high performance and uh, outcomes in the top 10 percentile of the network. So, I don't see David here. Here today, but uh, in addition to our central line infections and our medication safety, we're um, we're we're competing with the big boys and in, in succeeding. So, today's speaker is Dr. Sarah Pletcher, who is a member of our faculty, uh, assistant professor of both medicine and surgery, the medical director of the Center of Telehealth, as well as a co-director and co-founder for the Center the Center for Rural Emergency Services and Trauma. Uh, Sarah is a native of Michigan, receiving her uh, undergraduate degrees from Grand Valley State University and then master's and medical degrees from Michigan State University uh, in East Lansing, has been with us at Dartmouth-Hitchcock since 2005, and is going to share with us thoughts on how advanced interactive technologies like telehealth can help CHAD achieve its promise as a regional academic health system. Them. Thanks, Shara. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I think I spoke to a subset of you guys about a year ago. It was kind of fun to go back and look at my slides and remember what we talked about then. Um, some of our telemedicine stars are still filling the seats. That's good. Dan Albert. Um, so um, in full transparency, um, I brought about 95 slides today, <laughs> um, and uh, maybe 96. Um, and the reason I did that is to really be prepared to speak to whatever questions you have. Um, it's funny because in my travels around within the DH system, I sometimes hear, man, you know, every time I turn around, it's another story about telemedicine. I'm so sick of telemedicine. And the same day, someone will say, I just am not hearing about what you guys are up to, and you know, when are you going to come and explain things to me, and can you talk to me about reimbursement and legislation? So I've brought 96 slides so that I can give you a bit of an overview, and then if there are areas that people want to dive deeper because they've heard a fair amount or um, want to stay high level at the basics, I can respond to your questions. So uh, there you go. Um, so let's just move through. So there's over the outline. Like I said, I'm going to give you an overview, tell you about um, some of the programs that we're up to, um, be prepared to do a little bit of a 
um, educational overview on the legal and regulatory um, aspects of telemedicine as well as some legislative movement in the landscape here in New England. Um, and that segues into um, availability to do a deep dive into reimbursement. Um, again, we don't have to do all of these. It'll really be um, what topics are of interest to, to you guys. Um, and then as part of the discussion, I can touch on some uh, pediatric models in telemedicine care. Um, I figured you'd be interested in what's happening kind of in your backyard. Um, but I can also speak to some national um, programs that might be of interest as you guys formulate your virtual CHAD strategy. Um, as just a parenthetical comment, I think we've had um, providers in just about every subspecialty within PEDS come to find us with great ideas in their area. Um, and Keith and the broader CHAD group have been a great partner in trying to think about how all of those pockets fit into one cohesive strategy for CHAD. Um, it was great to go to the retreat and hear all the um, ideas of what that might look like. Um, so for, for groups like CHAD and the Cancer Center, um, we're trying to both collect ideas in the subspecialty areas, but, um, but then keep it really uh, supportive of the broader strategy. All right, so with that, <clears throat> you know about us. I don't have to hit you guys with the DH propaganda slides like I do out on the national tour. Um, but as you all know, and it's probably why you came here, um, we really are a safety net. Um, going out to the outside hospitals, the reliance that they have um, on us, in particular pediatrics, is, um, is compelling. And not all patients can get to us in the time um, that they need to for us to support their care. Um, so that's really what led to a recognition that we have to think differently about how we extend specialty care um, out to a population. Um, you know, we really began tracking some of the areas where this rural penalty is felt. Um, trauma, stroke, psychiatry are some of the obvious ones. Um, pediatric outcomes in our region, you know, again, I don't have to tell you guys about um, the outcome of not having pediatric expertise where it's needed. So the Center for Telehealth was founded just two years ago. Um, and we've been active in trying to advance using these technologies for clinical care, for education, collaboration, um, et cetera. Just to sort of look at our footprint, um, we have close working relationships with the other large health systems in the three-state area, which is why they're highlighted as you see them. Um, we've got activity in about 50, 50 sites across those three states. <clears throat> those range from hospitals, um, both critical access and community to um, primary care clinics to mental health centers, um, you name it. And we're really looking across this whole continuum of care and trying to thoughtfully operationalize these technology platforms into care. So just to get into some of the vocabulary, because I think this is a real area where I get a lot of questions, um, and it's great you're having Scott Shipman come in. Um, he's going to talk, um, I think, quite a bit about e-consults, um, so I can give you guys a little preview of that. <clears throat> so these are some of the terms that you'll hear. Um, distant site and originating site, lots of confusion. Essentially, that's just a fancy way of saying hub and spoke. Oh, thank you, Keith. Um, 
basically just referring to the location where the patient is um, and the location where the provider offering the consult is. So we use hub and spoke because it's a little bit easier to keep track of than distant and originating, but from a billing perspective, distant site and originating site is the right term. And then an e-consult, um, again, this term is used lots of different ways, um, but in our vocabulary, an e-consult is um, utilizing the medical record. A provider will send a message with the chart to another provider to say, can you take a look at this and give me some suggestions? Um, so what you're going to hear, I suspect, from Scott uh, relates to the CMMI grant that we put forward a few years ago and had an award to develop this capability within EPIC. So if you're a general pediatrician and you want to reach out to a subspecialist, you can and within the context of EPIC, write a little you know, question, send the chart, and the specialist will send you back some recommendations. And they've put together a nice model around how that will look um, within the DH system. Um, an e-visit is what we think of within EPIC, you know, the MyDH, sort of an email exchange, if you will, where someone says, I've had a call for three days, someone else responds. Um, again, it's a term that's used lots of different ways, but it, you know, correctly, an e-visit is not a live video encounter. It really is this exchange of um, a secure email, if you will. Um, and then another whole category, home monitoring, remote patient monitoring, remote medical sensing, RMS. You'll hear a lot of terms in this space. Um, it's all telehealth, um, but this whole category really refers to patients who are at home with devices being monitored, usually for a chronic condition, um, often used for elderly populations. M health or mobile health is a broad term really just meaning um, all devices that travel on the patient. So biomonitors, um, apps on a smartphone, text messaging, um, that's the broad world of mobile health. And as you might expect, mobile health, telehealth, e-health, virtual health, connected health, it's all blurring into one big, um, big ball. Uh, peripheral devices, these are things that you would plug in um, in order to have a more robust exam. So things like stethoscopes, ophthalmoscopes, um, uh, lights, cameras, these are all devices that can be integrated into a telehealth encounter so a patient at a distance, um, the provider can still have the ability to do a comprehensive exam. Um, in the practitioner's cart, or just a telemedicine cart, um, this is a one way that we place a presence in an outside location like a hospital. Um, so there's a nice big screen and a camera, and you can load all the peripherals in, and it can be wheeled from location to location in order to offer consultations. Store and forward, um, this phrase refers to any time you capture something and send it off for someone to review later. So it's not live. Um, it's things like taking a picture and sending it to a dermatologist. Um, radiology is store and forward. Uh, E-consults are store and forward because you're sending a chart and someone is looking at it later. Um, these things become important later in reimbursement because a lot of the reimbursement hinges on it being a live synchronous encounter with video. So store and forward technologies, though valuable and exploding in the telehealth industry, often face um, reimbursement challenges with the payers. <clears throat> and then a telemedicine clinic, so that's any scenario where we're directing um, a physician or provider to another site 
um, do you want my tea, Keith? <laughs> um, for the patient to be seen remotely. Um, and that's usually done in conjunction with this term telepresenter. Um, it's often a nurse, though it doesn't have to be a nurse. The idea is just someone who's at the side of the patient to help facilitate whatever exam the distant provider wants to conduct. And then lastly, virtual visit, not to be confused with an e-visit or an e-consult. A virtual visit is similar to a telemedicine clinic, and again, terms are blurring, um, but virtual visits generally mean a scenario where um, a patient is connecting with a provider directly. They're not going to a location to be seen with a card and a telepresenter. You know, they're getting a link in their email and clicking on it and having a sort of Skype-like experience. So it's, it's much more consumer to provider direct. Um, so hopefully that lulled you into a sense of sleep. Um, any questions about those? Any other terms that you want to understand before we go forward? All right, good. As I suspected, completely sedated. Um, so just to give you an overview of, of what we're up to, um, telemedicine clinics, uh, we have these up in 19 specialties at present um, and many more in stages of development or implementation or pilot. Um, second opinions, uh, which is a store and forward uh, e-consult type of um, uh, platform, we offer those in conjunction with um, our Mayo Clinic relationship across all of our specialty service lines. Um, and then acute care, so these are offering telemedicine consultations live, um, but in the hospital or inpatient setting. Um, so these are the 24-7 service lines. Radiology, as many of you know, we've had that now for um, a number of years. Um, respiratory therapy, our stroke program, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a moment. Um, Neurology, you know, inpatient neurology consults, neurovascular surgery, um, our neonatology transport project. And then coming soon, you see um, four of the uh, specialty areas where we're, we're either about to launch or just beginning the planning process. And then e-visits, as I mentioned, this is an epic modality. Um, they've been uh, successful at getting a fair number of patients registered and um, have used the e-visit platform uh, with some success in primary care. Um, and you see the visit numbers there. And then virtual visits, so this platform that we offer directly to patients. So they get a link, they click in, they go into a virtual waiting room, they see the provider. Um, we have those up and live in three broad areas, mental health, chronic condition care, and um, surgical specialties. And then lastly, e-consults. Uh, we had a CMMI grant, as I mentioned, to um, lead these off in 12 specialties. This was in partnership with the AAMC. So Scott Shipman um, will be here wearing his AAMC hat, I expect, as well as his Dartmouth hat, um, and can tell you a whole lot more about the, uh, the details of that project. So that's us in a nutshell. Um, we also use these technologies for education and quality improvement, protocol sharing, those sorts of things. Um, the Crest Network is an example of how we've uh, brought 20 hospitals together around sharing skills training and educational content. Um, just to give you a sense, uh, this number, I need to update, it's now over 10,000 um, CME hours that we've awarded um, using telehealth technology to bring providers in for education. Um, and a summary of our outreach and advocacy. Um, we've had 13 grant awards in the last year and a half. I don't wish that on my worst enemy. Um, but it's been a great opportunity to advance 
a lot of projects quickly. Um, and if you want to hear more, I have slides at the end outlining the different grants. There are a couple that are pediatric focused, so happy to talk about those if we have time. And um, I'll get into why legislative advocacy is important um, when we get into reimbursement, but um, we've been very aggressive in New Hampshire and Vermont, um, both on regulatory uh, reform as well as ensuring that all the insurance companies reimburse for telemedicine um, and then moving towards getting Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement in two states. Um, just a, a month ago, the American Telemedicine Association graded all 50 states for their favorability of their landscapes for telemedicine, and New Hampshire was one of only six who received an A. Um, so we are pleased that um, all those trips to Concord paid off, not just in uh, sandwiches at the, the deli around the corner. So, um, And then telehealth education. Uh, so these are all things that we've launched. Um, we do a two-day summit in the fall, um, usually in some location in northern uh, New Hampshire. Um, this year it was in um, uh, Lake Winnipesaukee. We had um, 150 people, I think, come from all across the country, um, many from Dartmouth. Um, and then our telehealth training center, so this is using the Sim Center environment to uh, teach and coach and simulate um, workflows for our providers, nursing staff, et cetera. Telehealth Grand Rounds, which are offered quarterly. We bring in national speakers for that. I'm sure many of you have been dragged to some of those. Um, and then telehealth electives. We do this not just with Geisel, but also for the LPMR fellows, TDI, MHCDS, um, um, both formal electives as well as informal shadowing and project support. So thousands of participants have come through through that. So I think those are the folks who are telling me they're sick to death of hearing about telemedicine. So some success. Um, just some pictures. I had to put Dan Albert in because I knew he'd be here. So, Dan, there you are, seeing a patient. What do you remember about that guy? Uh, he came in with a rifle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is not unreasonable, really. Yeah, as long as it's a telemedicine and not a <laughs> Exactly. I'm going to add that to my reasons to do telemedicine. Thank you. Anyway, it, yeah, it was a good encounter. Uh, Dan made one very uh, funny point um, in doing a telemedicine rheumatology project in Bennington that one of the patient complaints was, well, gee, I really used to like bringing baked goods into my provider. And, you know, Dan had the pain of having, I think he had to, like, see a pie through the video screen. And <laughs> so unintended negative um, implications for telehealth. Um, and then virtual visits, um, again, the idea here is easy connection directly between patient and provider using any device that they have on them, so no special equipment required for these. And again, happy to talk to you more about any of these platforms and programs in more detail. Our acute care projects, as mentioned, um, just to give you a sense of some of the store and forward applications, this is a picture of dermatology where you can capture images um, easily at the bedside by the patient, and then a provider can scan through a number of pictures. The reimbursement challenge is the part that we face, um, but it nevertheless makes all sorts of sense, particularly when access and clinic space is so pressured. Radiology, as mentioned, you get the idea of this, I'm sure. 
mobile health, you know, all sorts of apps and gadgets and biomonitors. I know, I know y'all are out there seeing these things coming through just like I am, but it feels like every single day there's a brand new, um, smaller, um, better looking monitor that can tell you 87 things about your, um, your medical case. I think I've got about 60 of them on my desk. If anyone wants to come borrow them, I get sent these things all the time. Um, and then home monitoring, there's a whole group at Dartmouth engaged just in this space. Um, so, so just working on the technology and infrastructure to allow us to be a presence for patients at home, particularly in areas like CHF, COPD, et cetera. And I already talked about education. There's a picture of one of our case reviews where we bring in emergency departments from 20 hospitals for a live case discussion. Um, you see Scott Rohde, Eric Martin, and Dave Roberts um, all discussing um, some patients with the outside sites. You can see how invigorated and passionate they are about the experience. <laughs> Got to get better pictures. Um, and uh, then a skills training um, environment in the Sim Center that we're broadcasting out to our region. And I think that might be Matt Braga in the back. So I think I'm getting my peds in here wherever I can. Um, so stroke, we've been live with this now for um, two years um, and are in a number of sites. It's been a great program. Um, our first hospital uh, gives you a sense of, of how powerful this can be. Um, Catholic Medical Center was, before we implemented, administering TPA in less than 1% of their patients, and they were transferring 100% of them out. Um, after we implemented the first 100 patients, um, they, they moved their TPA administration rate up to 33%, which is spectacularly good. Um, and they've kept 96 of those 100 patients at Catholic. Um, and the ones that were transferred here, um, or where they wanted to transfer here, but we didn't have beds, were very highly specialized cases where we were going to offer um, surgery or an interventional treatment. Um, so a great outcome for everyone, right? Patients loved it. Um, the nursing staff and providers at Catholic learned a whole lot about stroke care by being part of the consultation with our experts. Um, hospital administration down there was pretty happy to have 100 patients that they got to keep, um, and we kept some beds open. Um, not for very long, but nevertheless, we kept some beds open. Um, Sarah, I have a question. That person yeah. is, is, do you have someone there 24 hours a day for that remote consult? Absolutely. We, they're not there at Catholic, of course. No, this person at the remote station. Yeah, so exactly. So for our stroke service, um, it's a dedicated provider pool. So we have someone on 24-7 for a full week. That's all they're doing is telestroke. Um, and then there's two or three layers of backup to that. So the person who's on inpatient consults for that week is the backup in case they get two calls at the same time. And then it goes to the person in clinic who's on backup, et cetera. Um, so that's how it works. So the nice thing for the outside hospitals is if they need to call back with questions on managing that patient, chances are decent that it's going to be the same provider, which has been um, very helpful. It's a partnership with the Mayo Clinic. Um, so we have a total of um, 15 providers, you know, 10 out of Arizona, some in Colorado, our own providers in the DH system in order to ensure that provider pool that's uh, dedicated and um, can respond within a minute uh, to jump on these consults. And it's obviously backed up by our whole team of subspecialists here, um, which again, as I mentioned, allows us to offer um, a lot of interventional and highly specialized capability to hospitals. So I'll get a lot of questions about what does the technology look like. Um, 
you know, I think I've started using the phrase that I hear quite a bit in the telemedicine landscape, which is, it's not about the technology. I mean, it is, but it's not. Um, you can use just about anything um, to do this as long as you've got the workflows worked out. So tablets, smartphones, laptops, video conference rooms, you know, equipment that looks like this. This is what our cart looks like um, that is in our emergency department setting. So it's FDA approved, it's, you know, uh, regulatory friendly, it's wireless, it's um, uh, cordless, you know, recharges, etc. You can see that the screen allows you to screen share so you can, the two providers or the patient can be involved in looking at imaging, talking to other members of the care team, etc. As I mentioned, peripheral devices can be integrated into that solution. And then on the provider end, um, rather than insist that the providers go to a conference room to do these consults, it was important to us to build a platform where they could connect from anywhere using anything. Um, so when our providers are on call for a 24-7 service, as long as they've got wireless and um, a basic connected device, they can respond to a consult. Um, so that's the concept there. Um, for our 24-7 for our service lines anyway, um, we implement um, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock's uh, cloud-based PAC system, allowing the outside sites to take the scan, dump it in a folder, and our providers can get to it right away without having to wait for it to make its way into our native PAC system, which we know can be not straightforward at all times. Um, so this is what at least our acute care consult workflow looks like. Um, the idea here is that it's a whole lot like any other call that comes to the transfer center. It begins and ends with a phone call discussion between the providers, um, but there's a decision made here to proceed to a video consult. The imaging goes to that cloud solution, like I mentioned, records are shared, they have the video connection, um, but after the video connection where the provider is at the bedside of the patient, um, they close that out with a phone call between the provider who asked for the consult in the first place. And that's a, a critical part of ensuring that this is always collaborative and supportive um, and that the providers out in the distant hospitals looking after the patient um, feel as if they're part of a, um, a partnership making a decision about the care of that patient. And if the patient can be kept at the hospital, great. They need to be transferred. Our transfer center supports that, whether it's to Dartmouth-Hitchcock or somewhere else that makes more geographic sense for the patient. So that's that. Any questions about that? All right, very good. So teleneurology was the second service line. Um, uh, that we added right after stroke. So um, in straightforward terms, it's sort of everything but stroke, um, you know, seizures, encephalopathy, you name it. Um, very much the same concept. Um, it, it's, uh, it roves around the inpatient floor, though. So rather than being um, an emergency department-focused service, um, it's, uh, it's used throughout the whole hospital in the ICU, on the floor, and in the ED. And critical care is probably the next to come. Um, this is not an EICU model. Um, this is an on-demand consult from an intensivist for the management of a patient anywhere in a hospital setting. Um, Teleathletics, very close and near to dear to Keith Loud's heart. Um, but I think this really represents an opportunity, um, particularly in pediatrics, uh, for us to support 
institutions, colleges, schools. Um, there's a number of school systems in other parts of the country that have reached out to say, hey, we want to have pediatrics available to us over telemedicine. Um, and colleges who are having a hard time keeping um, clinical watch on all of their students, um, even medical students who travel away for clerkships, have come to us to say, is there a way that we can use this platform to connect uh, providers with our student population? So the athletics pro uh, program was an attempt to begin thinking about uh, technology solutions to embrace that need. And vascular, um, I love this picture because it could not be a hunkier photo of Rick Powell. Um, but the concept here is we just launched this. It's a 24-7 vascular presence using a combination of in-person and telemedicine. So we're providing a, a full vascular surgery solution um, on the other side of the state at Exeter where we send surgeons over there three days a week, but all the 24-7 call, the consults in the ED, the consults on the floor are done using telemedicine. So. Um, and this is, I think, sort of the next phase for us, is taking this specialty-by-specialty specialty service line capability run through the transfer center um, and bringing that to more of a single front-facing pool of providers in our transfer center, seeing every patient that comes in, um, and then handing those off to the specialty services where it makes sense. Um, in that um, it makes sense to have a stroke service line. I don't know that I can go out to hospitals and sell them on a pediatric endocrinology 24-7 service line. That being said, having that single-facing pool of providers um, would be able to recognize, hey, you know what, I'm going to have you talk to our pediatric endocrinologist. Um, so that's our the next area of focus for us is having this, um, you know, e-emergency platform integrated into our transfer center to enable um, telemedicine consultation through all of our specialty service lines. So that's uh, coming soon. All right, so I'll take a pause here to ask, um, as I said, I've got a number of slide decks um, all compressed in here. Keith, do you have a sense? I mean, do you guys want to hear about legal and regulatory stuff? Do you want to hear about reimbursement business models? Do you want to hear about grant projects? You, you said you had some examples of pediatric implementation recently in Nashville. Mm -hmm. I might um, make sure we get there, and then we continuing on the survey. Course level is probably a good idea. Okay. All right. So let's see here. Do you see what you just uh, saved everybody? All this reimbursement stuff. What's covered, what's not? Um, so Telepicu, um, the PICU team here um, I, has been great in contemplating what um, this might look like at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and um, are excited and engaged about moving forward in that space. Um, and there's, it's, it's been a, a, a great area of success nationally and, and um, regionally. Um, so this is a picture of James um, Marcine at um, UC Davis. Uh, I think he was here for Grand Rounds four or five years ago, great guy. UC Davis has been a monster publishing data on telemedicine and pediatrics. Um, so if you are uh, really bored on the weekend, you can go online and um, read about some of their outcomes. Um, but they've used it in a whole host of areas, but it's sort of fronted by this PICU provider pool. Um, neonatology is another great area, just trying to take very, you know, very um, specialized expertise, but offer it out more broadly. Um, so we've had some great conversations with Bill Edwards and others around um, how do we think differently about regional management of neonates. 
So just to give you a sense of what's happening nearby, Eastern Maine has had a telepicu project in place for, um, I don't know exactly, but it's, it's, it's close to 10 years now. Um, they've got, I think, 21 hospitals linked up. So from their perspective, uh, they're going to get those patients anyway. And the sooner the team can get a look at the patient, the sooner they can um, make sure that the right triage, resuscitation, packaging, workup is done. Um, I mean, they've had a lot of... Uh, stunning um, lives saved. You know, the patient's families love it because they get to meet the team who's going to be looking after their kid as they load their kid onto a helicopter and send them six hours away. Um, they've had, uh, they've published some nice outcomes about reducing um, uh, redundancy of imaging, um, you know, reducing medication areas, improving outcomes, selecting the right transport modality, I mean, you name it. So um, some great guys over there um, who run that program. Uh, this is a link. I won't bother you with it now, but you can go on their website and read a little bit more. Um, as I mentioned, these were this was one of their first articles. They studied 18 critical access hospitals, and you can see um, the findings listed there. And then Fletcher Allen, um, the wonderful Barry Heath. Um, if you don't know him, look him up. He's just wonderful. Um, similarly, they've had a PICU project in place starting with 10 emergency departments in New York and Vermont. Um, he's published a couple of nice articles about um, offering pediatric telemedicine in um, rural locations. Um, again, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but there's a brand new article out about um, telemedicine consultation for kids. So, um, yeah. You've distinguished between EICU and and so just consults. Yeah, yeah. Can you right. clarify what those distinctions are? Yeah, so EICU means a fully wired set of beds, a 24-7 presence where someone is watching the beds, watching the vitals, making decisions, guiding care, etc. cetera. Um, so an EICU build usually requires, you know, a... Um, $8 million hub investment to set it up, and it's very expensive per bed. So it's hard to do in rural uh, communities like ours where there just aren't enough volumes of beds um, to have it make sense. Um, that being said, it's, it's wonderful because you get that kind of checklist-driven quality approach to looking after things in the, in the ICU setting and proactively um, seeing when things are, um, you know, about to decline. Um, so that's EICU. Um, a, a critical care consult service is sort of as it sounds. It just allows the, the, pro, the doctors looking after patients somewhere else to call up and get a, a consult from a critical care doc. So in the adult world, there are EICU projects that have had great outcomes, and there are some very limited number of just critical care consult services where you can simply get an on-demand consult. In the PICU space, however, um, it's not so. It's not an e-PICU platform. It's really just consults, um, often from hospitals who are going to send the patient anyway, who want to get some consult on helping with a code. Um, you know, what do I do before I send them? Do they need to be intubated or not? You know, I haven't intubated a kid. What do I do differently? Um, those sorts of things. Does that help? One of the uh, lessons of history is to. Look at history. Yes. With, uh, with implementation and the electronic sense of the electronic medical record, uh, our institution struggled. I think we got a very mixed message, you know, about uh, what it was like when we were implementing. 
Uh, yeah, I've been here 10 years, so I... Uh, not much, uh, not much uh, negative fact about, you know, I've done wonderful things, but... Yeah. In, in something like this, I'm sitting here thinking, well, okay, how are you doing with Epic? How, how are you trying to integrate this? Multiple institutions, multiple places, uh, yeah. multiple legal questions. Uh -huh. uh, are the, if you look at the outcomes, are the providers, the nurses, and the doctors okay with this from the perspective of of uh, the job uh, satisfaction, or is it something that, that uh, uh, is, is a real challenge? I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about that. All right, so I'll start with the first and move to the 47th question that you baked into that one. Um, there are complexities, right? There just are. Um, and the complexity's got to go somewhere, um, and you don't want to push the complexity at the patient, and you don't want to push the complexity into the little rural emergency department or the clinic, and you don't want to shove the complexity on the provider trying to offer the consultation. So at least right now, it's why we committed to having a centralized office so that you can go into a department and help operationalize that service for the providers so that for the provider end, it's not a waste of time, it's not a loss of revenue, um, they can deal with the technology, and similarly on the outside, ensuring that the contracts and the regulations are all, are all met. Um, from an adoption perspective, um, patients just flat out um, love having this available to them. Um, even ones that might seem resistant at first, uh, at the end of the day, they want the care when they need it, where they need it, um, in a way that's convenient to them. And I think what they find in short order is that they can form a relationship just fine across the technology. I mean, we as doctors partly uh, wish that that weren't the case, right? Because, you know, you try get trained in the, the, the encounter and how do you build the relationship and, you know, shaking the hand and all of that. But um, at the end of the day, those things are important and still very valuable and necessary. But when it comes to um, uh, chronic condition management or expertise in a time-sensitive manner, um, they adopt this technology just fine. Um, for providers, you know, I would say as long as you ensure that it isn't a time and money hit for the provider and you've supported them with the operational workflow, um, uh, they, they love it. I mean, the buy-in is great. You know, where you see faltering, it's where all those things haven't been supported. And I think Dan can attest to um, when he's in the moment and he's seeing a patient, it's great. <coughs> Patients love it. You know, it works for him. You know, where it's been a struggle is in the workflow details. You know, the boring stuff like getting the records to the right place before you have the encounter. Um, you know, making sure that the nursing staff knows what they're supposed to do. The same things that you'd contend with in any, um, any clinic setting. So let's see what else was in there. Um, technology barriers, was that another one? I mean, I think, <clears throat> like I said, the EMR issue, yeah, so, <clears throat> so our approach on the EMR side is um, I knew I couldn't contend with trying to integrate integration into all of our programs. You know, all these outside sites have their own records and their own ways of doing things, so at the simplest form, when we see a patient, we document in, an, in our electronic medical record and send it to the site that's looking after the patient. And they put it into whatever their medical record system is. Um, with respect to getting access to their records in the care of the patient, um, 
you know, as you guys can attest, a lot of that is verbal, right? You're hearing that from the provider and the nurse at the bedside of the patient saying the 65-year-old woman, you're not going to the chart to look at the age of the patient. Um, but part of that responsibility is on the site to fax the records to our transfer center who then uploads it in EDH so that when the providers, they're doing the consult, they have the images, they have the records, um, and they're getting information real time from the team um, with the patient. So we don't try to slay the dragon of, of enabling integration at the lowest level. You know, we keep it simple as it were and document in our record and send that note out to the outside and then have the outside site send records as relevant for the care of the patient. So when we have integration, that'll be great, but for now, um, that's what we do. It did, it did involve adding capability. So previously, you know, the transfer center didn't have the capability to register a patient in our, M, you know, in our EMR, give them an MRN number, create an encounter, but they can do all of that now 24-7. So that, that's been a key area in allowing providers to log in and the patient is in our system even if they're out at a remote site. So. So Bennington was a good example of how difficult it is, but it is not specific to telemedicine. Absolutely. It's just the difficulty of seeing patients in other systems. Right. So at Bennington, they had a paper record. They had two different electronic records. Mm -hmm. We had EDH, and we had the patient. So we had right. five sources of information integrate with every single encounter. Right. That was trouble. Right. But it was no different when we were there than when we were here. Right. <laughs> right. Just less driving. In, yeah. And you know the patients say, Oh, I'd rather see him in person. I said, Oh, okay, so you're willing to drive two and a half hours each way? No, 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 no. Right. I'd rather do it Except for the baked good problem. But yeah. you know, we'll work around that. So it's 8.47. Any other hot topics you want me to try to hit upon? Um, you go to Keith, <laughs> um, and at the, the CHAD level, I, I, you know, I think that was for the Cancer Center and for CHAD, you know, the, the, the message that we're, we're trying to support is that um, that needs to kind of come through a central strategy. Um, that being said, you know, we're certainly always happy to meet with people and, and help you with ideas and things that you might want to move forward. Um, uh, but yeah, that's essentially it. Do you want to add anything to that, Keith? You want them all to stampede my office? That's fine with me, but... No, you can stampede Sarah's office. I think <laughs> the key thing is to, to, um, to come with an idea of what, what you're going to do, what you're going to enhance, what you're going to improve, what, what's the goal. You know, what the, we, I think as Sarah points out, she's not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what uh, clinical care you should deliver using telehealth. You'll have a better idea of what is amenable to it, I think. I think where it's helpful, though, is the clinical ideas are great, um, and, uh, you know, I have had 10,000 of them or so. I think where it's even more powerful is when it's paired with knowledge about the region and volumes and workflow details. So when someone says, well, I travel to these three sites, you know, these number of days, and there's these volume of patients waiting, and we're booked out by these many months, and so I think if I could do this at this site two days a month based on the volumes, it just becomes a whole lot easier than someone who says, I'd really like to see such and such patients over telemedicine, and then we are trying to do the work of working out the strategy for the section um, department, the volumes, the locations, et cetera. 
So pairing up with your administrative practice manager director um, to come forward with both a clinical idea and some, you know, volume and geographic strategy um, is very helpful. I will just make one comment, and I think Dan can attest to this as well. Huge area for um, research and publications. Um, if you have a clinical area of focus, adding a little telemedicine to it will make it a whole lot more exciting from a publishing perspective. Similarly, um, the telemedicine space is eager for any um, publications, uh, really trying to get the data out there. So certainly consider um, taking your area and finding a way to implement a little bit of telemedicine. I think Dan found that. He was he published within like a week of his first telemedicine clinic. No, no, no exaggeration, I think. Um, so we've, yeah, we've had several abstracts and several interviews, but um, I, one thing I would just um, suggest is you might consider a hybrid model, which worked well for us. Mm -hmm. You know, approximately 20% of the patients by our estimates, we had a uh, TDI student who was involved in studying our telemedicine program. So, so about 20% of the patients were not deemed appropriate for telemedicine, and those we saw in person. So, we were, you know, if you did have a hybrid model, you could accommodate the few, the relatively few patients that you didn't feel were appropriate. Right. And so, I, I would encourage you to think about that as a possible model going forward. How's the reimbursement going, and is it ever conceivable that reimbursement will make it sustainable, or is it always something that's going to need to be grant funded due to the cost of the technology? Um. I think, well, so I would say I don't think it needs to be grant funded. It makes sense either from the institution level, from a population health, ACO, cost containment strategy, or and or from a reimbursement perspective. I mean, very quickly, in New Hampshire, all of the insurance companies reimburse for telemedicine at the same rate as they would an in-person encounter. Um, Medicare reimburses for all telemedicine at the same rate as an in-person encounter as long as the patient is in a location that is federally designated as non-metropolitan. So you got to go on and check the address, but fortunately it's most of the state. Um, and um, Medicaid um, at the moment does not reimburse for telemedicine in New Hampshire other than in um, a few mental health areas, um, but we're pushing them hard and I hope to see some movement soon. Um, in Vermont, um, same for private payers, same for Medicare, um, but we were successful in Vermont in getting Medicaid to reimburse for all telemedicine encounters regardless of specialty. So for PEDS, where there's a higher proportion of Medicaid folks, um, it becomes harder to rationalize programs, especially, um, you know, especially in um, New Hampshire at present. But that doesn't mean it doesn't still make a whole lot of sense if you have a scenario where you can contract with, an, with a hospital to say, we'll help you keep patients by giving you, then there's a balance model where they're paying us for the service so no one has to worry about billing. Um, or for chronic condition, population health, decompressing a clinic schedule, for example. So we have to be a little bit strategic still, I think, in Medicaid-intensive areas um, until I can corral the New Hampshire um, legislators into getting Medicaid codes turned on, so. Hey, I'm meeting with Nick Tumpus next week, man. I'm not messing around. Did you that, that those private pairs are paying only for synchronous video-enabled care? That is correct. That is correct. 
Shetland's been waiting. So um, I know we've had some conversations about the telepicu, um, but I feel like for the emergent 24-hour services, impedes were a little thin on the ground. So you'd be relying on that same on-call position. Um, yeah. Some of this is stuff we do anyway, and yeah. now we'll just have the addition of video right. you know, along the phone, which I think is really, I mean, all of this I think is going to be very beneficial. I am wondering about using that same technology um, to help avoid some of the pitfalls of not having 24-hour in-house attending. Mm -hmm. Use the same for sure. Telemedicine yep. get a cart in our PICU so I can see what's happening in my PICU. Yeah, or you can and use I tablets. Um, I don't know how much you guys, how much you know more um, we have a little bit. I mean, there's a, you know, just as a parenthetical, there's a cart sitting in my office on the fifth floor that we lend out. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Um, so it can it can go out and roam just to test out some of those approaches. But as I said, our platform is cloud-based, so a cart is a nice bedside tool, but you don't need it to connect up to the platform. You can go smartphone to smartphone, tablet to laptop. Hard. I almost feel like it's worse to have that picture because it's it just depends on what it is, right? So, you know, if it's, um, if it's, you know, hold the phone up so I can see the settings on the vent, you know. That's right. Yes. Talk to the audience about it because the American Academy of Pediatrics got a grant and they're imitating that for pediatric neurology. Yeah. So rather than directly to the patient, they're mm -hmm. training local pediatricians how to assess their seizure. Yep. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to hit that quickly. There's a whole bunch of movement in the education space for pediatrics. So here's one just down the road at Boston Children's. If y'all haven't heard about them, open pediatrics. So you can see it's, it's really tiny, but um, uh, this map gives you a sense of their, their reach. Um, they're putting best practices, protocols, skills training content up on the web for a subscription model. It's all acute care pediatric stuff. Um, IBM just jumped in on funding this. So, you know, it started out as a very humble project to, hey, we've got some expertise, let's put it out there so that people can take advantage of it, and it's gone viral, as it were. Um, so Open Pediatrics, you can check that out. Um, you mentioned both Project ECHO in New Mexico, which was started around Hep C, and you can again see my Teensy map. It's expanded to a zillion conditions and a zillion sites um, throughout New Mexico, and the concept there is sort of um, education and case management, so specialists linked to primary care, gives lectures, and then listens to case presentations and manages at a distance. Um, Project Envision, which is its pediatric counterpart, is a similar concept, but the idea there is they have a sort of you know online calendar with a whole bunch of areas so you can just show up and ask the peds allergist questions about management um, refer patients to them etc so it's the same concept but just a little bit of a spin and to your point I mean this has obviously been such a powerful way to manage patients um, at lower cost decompress the specialist calendar um, that the payers are jumping in the vendors are jumping in the sites are wanting to buy more and more of this because they keep the patients in the community 
community. They keep the labs at the pharmacy, the imaging in the community, um, and the specialists say, well, great, my, you know, my wait, wait list to get in for an appointment has gone down, and the acuity of the patients that come to me has gone up, and my referral relationships are strengthened. So it's a nice balanced um, model, and you can, you can go online and read about ECHO or Envision. So... Yeah, I mean, I think that's a. Um, I'd certainly be happy to throw, you know, to throw in on it, but it, it, uh, some of it is outside of my space, right? It's the education folks. I think um, um, John Berkmeyer, who's um, new to DH and is um, is now my boss, also is going to be overseeing education, and I'm pushing him hard to ensure that we do have a user-friendly platform to put content up. Um, you know, as you probably know, there's about 14 different ways of handling educational content. You know, you can put it online this way, you can do that, but no one I would expect out there knows, hey, I have a bunch of content. How do I put it up and get it out there to people? And that's the operationalization of virtual education that needs to occur. So by all means, you know, go to the education people and, and make that case because I think the more people who recognize the opportunity in that, the, the more progress we'll have making it easier. So I'll, I'll, I'll also respond to Sam and that, you know, we've got um, five practices that are Dartmouth, Hitchcock, Secure, Internet Networks, Share Our Network, Manchester, Nashville, Concord, Keene, Bennington, and this one today, and Plymouth, that, you know, that certainly that would be sort of easily implementable. Um, but the other question I had... For live stuff, yeah. I mean, we can easily link you up so you can share. You know, you can be all together. You can see everybody kind of tiled around the outside. You can share content. I, I think some of these projects involve more of a platform to put content up on a website and have a nice interface with it. But live education, absolutely easy. You can do that tomorrow. Leslie yeah. and Norm and our department have been doing virtual education for how long is split now? 15 years? Yeah, we're actually believe it. We stayed academically married that long. <laughs> um, but uh, so, my, Sarah, my question relates to that interface there. I mean, not surprisingly, that's kind of where my, my brain was going. You know, I'm, I'm, and I think in the past about our past case based teaching models. Mm -hmm. You know, many of us, I actually pulled out yesterday um, a patient file that I had kept from 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that I just printed up, you know, the discharge summary, stuck it in my interesting case files, mm -hmm. needed to bring up a patient to create a new virtual patient from Petra Lewis, all the radiologists nationally save all kinds of files. You know, they de-identify them, of course, because we need a great, you know, CT of this or MR mm -hmm. of that. It's amazing how much of that's been stored. Where are we right now? Because when now, you know, these are clearly not, I mean, virtual patients are real patients now. Yeah. Where are we in how we're thinking about storing interesting, real, virtual encounters. So let's say Sam sees a really interesting patient virtually, mm -hmm. got a learner there with him. Mm -hmm. Where are we right now from a legislative perspective in storing that? Because clearly, I mean, HIPAA issues are huge, and mm -hmm. you, can, you can't even de-identify it. You can see the patient right. in every aspect of their right. life. Where are we in thinking about 
how we use those for real yeah. Well, I guess I'll say the tele it hasn't really uh, touched the telemedicine realm as far as legislative advocacy. I think that's that's pretty solidly in the education, quality assurance, um, process improvement space and, and balancing security and privacy and with those intents. So it isn't really in the telemedicine arena at all. Obviously, when we want to use our tools to enable those sorts of activities, we have to enter in there to say, what's the latest ruling on can we do this or that or the other? Um, so I guess I'd say it isn't my space, but I, like you, look for some advancement there because we clearly need that ability. Um, in trying to set up case reviews with our 20 hospitals, you and I have chatted about this before. I mean, we had to jump through hoops with risk management, not just at DH, but at every single hospital that we wanted to interact with around how do we in real time review a case with all 20 hospitals and ensure that we've met all the regulatory requirements and still have a high quality experience for the providers where they're actually looking at imaging and talking about labs. Um, so um, like you, I long for improvement in that landscape. All right, bring it on. And I'll just close with this. Yeah. Uh, well, you can certainly visit ours, but there's not a whole lot of interest on there. Um, this is the American Telemedicine Association's website. They have a pediatric telehealth special interest group. Um, we are an institutional charter member of ATA, so you can join this special interest group, and they'll blip you with you know, cool programs happening in other parts of the country. You can join the leadership and actually take part in um, some research and conferences. And you see down here at the bottom, you could even look up the literature related to pediatric um, telemedicine care. So there's loads of great online resources. You can just Google pediatrics and telemedicine and stay pretty occupied for a couple hours at least. But this is a way of being a little bit more um, disciplined about it. Thank you all. Thank you.